Well, there is a magic formula in this now. <laughs> I'm bound to say that, right? <laughs> we love magic formulas. Uh, the... I'm sure the audience will too. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm asked every time, you know, what is the, what is the secret sauce? And I always tell them the same thing. I know the answer and I'm going to tell you. Coming to you in your speakers from Dubai to all around the globe. This is James Reynolds Traffic Jam Podcast. Five, four, three, two, one. Hello, I'm James Reynolds and this is Traffic Jam episode number 30. Now this episode and every single episode here on Traffic Jam, my guests and I share tips that will help you get more traffic and build a profitable audience online. Now this week we're back visiting the topic of Google search, which for me as a search marketer, of course, I'm especially excited about because I get to geek out a little bit with someone who's equally as passionate about SEO as I am. And my partner in crime who I'll be geeking out with this week is David Ameland, and he's the preeminent authority on all things Google semantic search. Now, if your mind just glazed over by the term semantic search, then don't worry because David and I cover that topic right at the front of the interview before going on to explain why this is the biggest disruption we've ever had since the whole web came along. Now, without exaggeration, this is going to affect absolutely everything from the way we market to the way we get jobs and even to how we might find life partners. And of course, in this interview, I get David to share exactly how you need to adapt for the new semantic web. Now, right after my interview with David, we've got this week's news in traffic. I have my regular segment, of course, the one minute traffic tip. And then we have the traffic jam jam, a music track chosen today by my guest, David Ameland. The Traffic Jam Podcast with James Reynolds. So who is David Ameland? Well, he's a former journalist, a former corporate executive and former SEO manager. He likes martial arts, quantum physics, and he can even still run the 100 meters in 11.4 seconds. Now, that to me sounds super fast. He's the author of several marketing books, including... Getting to number one on Google, the social media mind, online marketing help, and of course, his very latest book, the best-selling Google Semantic Search. Now, that is, of course, the topic of today's interview. So I guess without any further ado, let's dive straight in. This is David Ameland, and we're talking Semantic Search. So I'm here with David Ameland, author of the popular book, Google semantic search, which is kind of lucky because that's the topic of this podcast episode. David, a very warm welcome to Traffic Jam. Uh, hello, and thank you very much for having me here. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, well, this is going to be a blast. I love talking about search, and um, I know it's a topic that's very close to your heart. So we'll dive straight into the content. And I think I'd like to open up with what perhaps might be a basic question. I'm sure one that you've been asked all too often, but I guess nonetheless is very important to set the scene today. What the heck is semantic search? <laughs> You're absolutely right. Everybody asks that and quite rightly so, because semantic search is the biggest um, deal 
ever since the web came along. So it is really, really radical and really, really new and very powerful. And we need to understand it. So explaining what it is, it really is rocket science for, for a change in terms of search, but how it affects us is very, very simple, which is great. And let's think of it as a sandwich. It's comprised of literally three layers. Layer one is us, people doing the search. And the way we do it, how we do it, our search history, our search patterns, our activity and behavior, and everything we do goes into that, that layer and begins to inform the search mechanism. Layer two, which is the middle bit, is what we see on our computers or our devices. It's basically the search interface, which sometimes can be voice rather than a screen. Um, <clears throat> or it can be, um, in terms of Google Now, for instance, it can be predictive search. And the final layer, which is where all the magic happens, is the search engine mechanism itself, which goes out into the web, collects all the information as it has had done since search began, but then it does something new. It actually understands the language it finds the way you and I would, and it begins to index it in its index in a way that is structured as, un as, as, a, as a compared to unstructured. Here it gets a little bit technical. Unstructured information, think of it as um, kind of straw heap, the traditional haystack, and structured goes in very neat little bales. Each one has been labeled, and they're easy to find. So that's what it is. Everything comes together. The moment all this comes together, of course, search changes. It changes because suddenly we can find information which is contextualized for us at a personal level. So if, for instance, I'm in Dubai and I run a search on my uh, mobile device, the information I will find will be contextualized to my situation, my IP address, the location I'm in, and, and sometimes even the time of day. Fantastic. Let's continue this line of conversation and perhaps talk a little bit about, you know, how the search web has advanced, you know, from the point of view of the user. And maybe even we might be worth mentioning some of the advancements that perhaps our listener may or may not have noticed using Google and the other search engine. I guess I'm kind of talking here about without answering your question for you, of course, David, talking about things like knowledge graph, you know, Google now that you mentioned already and things like voice search. What are some of those, um, you know, advancements that we've seen recently? Um, great. There's, there's a uniting thread to all this, um, which can be scary sometimes when you take it to its logical extent. And the scary bit is, or the uniting thread here, of course, is artificial intelligence. So essentially, if we think of the search in the past, it was really a dumb mechanism. And it was really, really dumb. And I'll explain how dumb it was. It was essentially um, a textual analysis or text analysis, uh, which was statistical. And it created a probability of right or wrong for any search query. So in the past, you had to use some keywords in your search. For instance, let's say you were looking for um, podcast in Dubai, and you would have to have the word podcast and Dubai and perhaps the name of the presenter. You put all that in search, search would go away, find it in its index, if it had indexed it, and then uh, work out in terms of the number of keywords whether uh, some documents matched that in terms of probability. And this created um, two, two, two special binds. First of all, um, in terms of the searcher's experience, if you were inexperienced and you were looking for something and you weren't familiar with using keywords or you weren't familiar with using specific um, search operators, then your likelihood of finding something precise dropped off a little bit yeah. so so the moment you went off the beaten path you know you were into unknown territory on the on the side of the person creating the content you also had to try and second guess those who would 
be likely to look for it. So if you're a business person, for instance, obviously what you want to do is promote your business. You have specific jargon sometimes. You have to do specific things. But also you have to think, if somebody is a complete novice but still needs your services or your products, what are they likely to look for? And then you had to go into this game where you're creating more and more keywords. So you're expanding your keyword footprint, which meant you need to create more content around these keywords. And some of those keywords were a little bit sort of, you know, we call them long tail keywords. They are not very popular. We still had to create content for them, which was very thin content because it was only specifically created to bring in traffic from search on a probability basis, you know, mm. if somebody searched for that. It was not a very good experience. Um, it created landing pages, created a lot of work for people who had businesses. Uh, it became a very lo uh, lossy proposition in terms of the value it gave to, to, to us as individuals. All of this has changed radically. Now, semantic search looks at a document, looks at a page, looks at a website. It tries very hard to understand what does the business do? How does it do it? What are its uh, specificities? What is its specialization? How good is it? I mean, this is mind-blowing. We get search now trying to uh, put in place a qualitative judgment on how good we're in our business and serve us up ahead of somebody else. So it tries to do all that. And then it tries to, do, to understand, what do I mean when I put down, for instance, podcast in Dubai? Am I looking to start a podcast myself? Am I looking for a podcast in Dubai? Am I looking for perhaps podcast equipment in Dubai, because I might actually be doing that. And the way it's trying to do that is through my own personal signals. So this synthesis now, when it works perfectly, what it does, it understands what I'm looking for, and it gives them the best possible answer, which is good news for me as a consumer. It's good news for a business because usually there's only one or two businesses which will come up as that answer. Mm. There, is a, there is a caveat here, <laughs> of course, <laughs> um, with we're still not quite there yet because in order for semantic search to work, it needs tremendous amounts of data. It's getting there. It's, it's getting faster and faster in terms of uh, how quickly it's accelerating. But right now, we're in a sort of slightly gray zone. We have a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. So it's a little bit of, it's a, little, it's a slightly imperfect world. And sometimes, depending on the type of business we're looking for or depending on the kind of, um, of um, device we're on sometimes, we might get answers which are not um, as satisfactory. Yeah, but we can certainly see that movement in the right direction. I mean, now looking at search results in themselves, if we look back perhaps even six months, certainly 12 and, and, and definitely sort of two years and beyond, the quality of those results is far less manipulated than it was previously. And we should be seeing far less low quality results, right, coming up in the, the upper parts of the, the page, or at least moving in that direction. Definitely. I think you made two very important points here. Now, I'm grateful for that. First of all, you said they're less likely to be manipulated. Now, in the past, because search was able to be broken down to very specific steps, which we could understand, then it was, you know, we're bound by human nature to put them into effect and more and more of that as we went along. And this turned into a bit of a game, hence the gaming nature of search, where we could see websites coming up, which perhaps didn't quite deserve to be there the way they were. Yeah. Now, semantic search is um, a lot harder to gain. It's a lot harder to gain because it's a lot more complex. We can still understand it. But the entire um, <clears throat> economic value of any gaming behavior is that it actually provides a shortcut 
between what you do and the goal you're trying to achieve. So in the past, if you want your website to rise on the first page of Google, for instance, um, you did certain things and it rose very quickly. So you saved yourself a lot of time, you gained a lot of money in the process, and it worked. With semantic search, this is not so. You still have to do the same amount of work whether you're trying to fake something as you would if you were to do it for real. So because the time element has gone, because there's no shortcut, then the economic behavior trying to gain something doesn't make any sense anymore. Mm. And that makes it more likely that you will actually do the work that is required in order for your business to actually rise in semantic search, which then, then has a positive impact in terms of consumers, quality, and um, less manipulation. And since we're talking about quality, of course, the easiest shortcut for any business looking to gain um, sort of an edge in semantic search is to actually produce quality content in terms of reaching first its primary audience, its customers, the consumers, and secondary search in terms of um, creating a website that will appeal to search engines. And that, again, is a win because, again, as consumers, we tend to get better information on the web and it tends to sort of satisfy the needs we have when we search for it. Well, let's talk a little bit about these steps that we might go through now as a, a business owner or as an SEO or as a marketer compared to the past. Other than putting out better quality content, what other steps might we be taking to position ourselves better in kind of the semantic era compared to that of the past where we would, you know, stuff content perhaps with a set or string of keywords to try and, you know, influence um, the relevancy of the content for the results, etc. So how things change, David, between the past and the present? Well, there is a magic formula for this now. <laughs> I'm bound to say that, right? <laughs> we love uh, magic the, formulas. I'm sure the audience will too. Exactly the uh, same too. Well, I'm asked every time, you know, what is the, what is a man's secret sauce? And I always tell them the same thing. I know the answer and I'm going to tell you. And the moment I tell them, they realize there is no real secret sauce. If you want to gain traction in semantic search, you ask yourself three basic questions. Who are you? Why do you do what you do? And how do you do it? These are three things. These three things, however, form have many steps when you actually break them down. They're very inward looking and they tend to form the unique business proposition of any kind of business. Basically, it's business identity. And the moment you have a business identity, you realize it's unique. No business is like any other business, even if they're actually doing the exact same thing in the same industry. And that begins then to become the defining factor. Once you have that in place and you say, okay, the questions become a lot easier. How do I project this? Do I need to, for instance, to have content which has to be videos and shows my passion for my work or the uniqueness of what I do? Do I need to have text? You know, do I write blog posts? And we don't have to write any every day anymore. It's not like in the past we were slaves to the blogs because we had to do it. And if we didn't do it, then we didn't get indexed as much and we didn't show up on search. Now, all these values of who we are, why we do what we do, and how we do it, they're an integral part of the quality of what we do on the web and the quality of the digital identity. So you create all this as a business, and this, I'll make it sound very easy, of course, I realize that. <laughs> There's a lot of work there. <laughs> now, you do all that, and you say, okay, I've done all that. You know, I spent the last year doing it, so what? What do I do next? And the next thing now, and this is absolutely critical, you need to have a social layer to everything you do. And why do you need to do that? Because essentially, and Google has said this, semantic search is a transition from a web of websites to a web, to a web of people. And this is a little bit of a, uh, of a cipher because you think, you know, I still consume information on websites, I still make my purchases on websites. Well, yes, 
as vehicles, but really you connect to people and you need to have a sense of the website to of the business you're actually connecting with in terms of the people behind it, their passion, their drive, their identity, which creates the trust factor which we need. And without trust, all commercial activity stops. Mm. So really, in order to have this connection with people, the social layer, whether you are in Facebook or you're in Twitter or you're in Google+, and Google+, should definitely be on your radar, you basically create all these social connections which buy with inverted commas, into what you do in sense of purpose, drive, and passion. And they become your amplification points. So suddenly your social footprint begins to increase. And I'll give an example of this. Suppose, for instance, you're selling kayaks. And you're in Dubai, you're selling kayaks. And I'm not going to buy a kayak from you in Dubai because I'm in Britain. And I can find a kayak on my my doorstep. However, if we connect online and you're really passionate about what you do and I'm interested in kayaks, you tell me about this and I think this is really cool. And I listen to you and I begin to form an idea that, hey, you, you know your business and uh, what you do is fantastic and it resonates with me. I'm still not going to buy anything from you. Because we connected, engaged, interacted, however, on the personalized search, somebody looking for kayaks who's on my social network is now quite likely to find your content, even though they're not your direct customer and they don't know you, they know me. So basically through me, who I'm not your customer, but I am your connection because we connected socially, they now find you. And because they know me and trust me, they're more likely to actually make a connection and a purchase from you. So basically the world has got very small. The traditional six degrees of separation now are there about probably two, maximum three, which means the connection of friend of a friend actually has monetary value, which is why social creates a social proof, why creating social layer on your website is critical, because that's how you actually find the audience, which is targeted and more likely to actually make a purchase with you. Right, got it. So this is really, I mean, I guess from Google's standpoint of how they're trying to push this thing forward and position it, and they're really trying to bring that real world offline interactivity that an individual would have with their network or community or or following. And they're trying to bring that, I guess, really into, you know, a new age online environment where the same connections still exist, right? I mean, it's really that transference of, Hmm. you know, real life interactivity online. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Exactly what you said. That we, we, we've known these things and we in, intuitively put them into use in our offline environment and offline wor- world and offline connections. For the past 10, 15 years, we, we wrongly assumed that digital also meant an economy of scale and a massive audience with just a few clicks. And it's mm. not the case. You really have to market to one single person at a time. You have to make that resonant connection, which then allows them to become your online evangelist, your amplification point, which spreads your message, spreads your presence essentially on the web and makes it more likely that you're going to surface in search in very different formats and very different environments. And this is another difference with semantic search. The traditional first page of Google, which we used to all vie for those 10 links, we needed to be on the first three, otherwise um, it just dropped off, your, your clicks dropped off and um, everybody sort of tried to to game that position. It really doesn't work like that anymore because the first page of Google is becoming increasingly personalized, which means that it's different for every person 
um, dependent dependent on a, a variety of factors, from the, you know the devices they use to the, the previous searches they've done, to the search history, to the search patterns, to the time of day, and, ov and obviously where they are in the world. So really, you're going for visibility rather than a ranking in search. And what I have noticed with um, website with companies who, who I advise is that as semantic searches kicked in, they have noticed a, a strange thing. The traffic which they had has dropped off sometimes by as much as 40%. However, they have seen an increase in conversions sometimes by as much as 15%. Mm -hmm. So really what's happened is you're getting fewer customers landing on your web page, but they're more highly motivated, they're more targeted. And at the end of the day, that's that's the real uh, kicker really because that's exactly where you want to be. So what sort of change in mindset do we need to have to really make a go of semantic search? I guess the first thing would be a real kind of movement away or thought away from traditional um, keyword-based search and keyword data, which I guess to a certain extent Google are kind of forcing upon us anyway, right? I mean, we can't access keyword data in the same way that um, we used to. What, I mean, should we be, I mean, on that point, should we still consider keyword data? Should we still look to map our site and build our purpose around what people are actually searching? There's a, it's a brilliant question. You're right. Keywords not provided now is universal. Um, no webmaster actually gets the keyword data because um, they can't really track the keywords of broad customers to their websites. Although through um, Google Webmaster Tools, you can still get keyword data for the past 90 days. Yeah. But really... The point behind all this is that we used to use keywords because we chased search engines. We created content which appealed to search engine bots first and people second. And the mind shift which needs to take place now is that you need to run your online business in exactly the same way as you would your offline business. So how would you run an offline business? Well, you're not trying to um, impress advertisers or wow your suppliers Obviously, you do that differently, but not with the way you present your business. What you're trying to do is get your customers, those who see you, to make a decision, an informed decision that, hey, you are the business they want to actually work with. You're the person they want to make a purchasing uh, decision um, for or with. So in order to do that, you have to basically, in every kind of contact, whether it's visual, whether it's um, through your advertising, whether through your content, through your, the setup of your shop, and in this case, your website, you create visual cues which send a message. You create all the kind of layers of information which allows somebody to make an informed decision. And this is the mind shift. Basically, you're focusing from search to people, and through people, you will get search. So you're really chasing people. And I'm using chasing here, obviously, in a sort of very broad context. <laughs> now, the thing is, the moment you succeed in that, you've won because suddenly you have an audience. And it's your audience, it's not anybody else's. That gives you a good operating base. And the moment you have an audience, you also have impact in search because that audience is an online audience. They are active in, social, in the social web. They're active themselves in websites. They're active in terms of how they pass around information and engage and interact with it. So they become your footprint on the web. It's like your shop has suddenly grown times the number of people in the audience that you have. And that, that's that's an incredible thing to have. Great. Well, let's talk a little bit about content because I'm sure the the kind of mechanics of content um, would always be something that would um, interest someone who's getting into this. What sort of 
frequency, format um, should we be looking at? Or does, in fact, none of this stuff matter? We just have to find a kind of a personal voice that connects with our audience. Certainly there is a technicality to it, but in the, you know, the most proficient and efficient um, SEO in the world wouldn't be as effective as a really passionate person who can reach their audience. So really your voice, which is your connection with your online audience, is key to this. If you have a voice, then obviously you think, okay, how do I use it best? And here there are separate factors. The amount of time you have available will come into it. The amount of money you have available for this will come into it. Perhaps the technical expertise will come into it. If you can make fantastic videos, which everybody loves to share and they go viral, great, do that. If you can make podcasts, very good. If you can write really well and really passionately, that's fantastic. And now if you get into the technicalities of, you know, how long should my writing be? Well, it should be as long as it should be in order to get the message across. You know, if you look at Seth Godin, for instance, these days he barely writes more than 25 words. But they are 25 fantastic words because he's been thinking about it for ages. He puts that in there because he hasn't got a lot of time. And there, you know, on his blog, you go on his blog and you think, this is really cool. He gives you an idea which is absolutely fantastic. And it's that kind of value that we're actually looking for in terms of a win in a semantic web, which is transparent, where everything you do now begins to accrue value. It has a reputational effect, which broadens your digital uh, footprint. Now, you stated somewhere on the interwebs when I was researching for this interview that uh, Google Plus is the closest you'll get to a shortcut in semantic search. Explain what you mean by that one. Okay, um, a lot of people think that Google Plus is a rival to Facebook um, because we use the word social network to explain what it is because it's convenient. And really, it has nothing to do with Facebook. Google Plus is a social layer that Google has put in place, and its real intent is to create a digital identity service for semantic search. And why do we need that? Because semantic search really needs that unique factor, needs to understand that I am David and I do very specific things and you are James and you do very specific things. And although we're both male, that's the only commonality we have. We're in different, different geographical locales with different age, different experience, different activities and so on. The only way you can do that is if it begins to identify us from an initial point. And the easiest initial point for Google is Google+. Plus. So if you're in Google+, Plus and you have your profile, through that profile, through what you post, through your interactions, through your engagement, through the engagement that your posts actually have, the people you connect with, all these things are summed up. And as they summed up, they go into your reputational cloud, let's call it that, which Google uses to assess the impact and importance of what you do. So if, for instance, suppose I was the world's best fisherman and I had a, cr- a crowd in Google Plus who followed me about that and it's fantastic. And I happened one day to come across a bicycle shop, which I thought was really cool. And I liked it and I thought, you know, this is cool. I have, you know, half a million fishermen who follow me. I'll tell them, if you ever think about getting a bike, this is the place to do. Well, I can't do that, or rather I can, but it'll have no effect whatsoever because my reputational pool is in that particular particular uh, sector which I have built up over time. And again, this works pretty much the same way that we work offline. You know, you meet somebody offline who's an authority in that subject and they tell you, hey, listen, you know, if you want brain operation, um, I know somebody who knows somebody. You think, eh, wait a minute, <laughs> the hmm. guy is a skier. <laughs> Maybe there's no real connection there. But if he was a doctor and he told you that, immediately you begin to trust him more. 
So, the, you know, it's a kind of approach and a kind of um, um, nuanced um, sort of division of, 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 of speciality that we get now on the web. And Google Plus is, because it's Google's own social layer, is entirely transparent to it. Right now, it will give you the easiest way to gain foothold in semantic search. And how much, David, is this actually affecting um, rank in the search results? Because, you know, Google might argue, and I'm sure there's plenty of others out there, including perhaps myself, that might also state the case. If there's a, you know, there's a someone out there who is an authority in a particular um, niche or area, and they're not signed up to Google Plus, should someone who's part of Google Plus automatically get preference within the results? So is this actually on the ground level affecting search results? Great question. The short answer is yes. We actually see a little bit of a shift. Now, given the fact that not everybody's in Google+, and Google doesn't primarily want to focus on that. Right now it does that because this is its starting point. Eventually, as semantic search, or rather it's semantic indexing, encompasses more and more data, it will apply the same nuanced metrics on pretty much anyone's activity, irrespective of whether they're on Google+, or not. We're still in the early days, and we have carried out tests. I have carried out tests with a group of, of um, uh, other experts in Google+, and this is what we have seen. We have seen the fact that if you are an authority in your area and you promote a particular post, that post is likely to rise to a high visibility and on desktop search within the first page of Google within a day or two. Um, and it does that very quickly. It doesn't stay there very long. Uh, it doesn't stay there very long because, obviously, unless it's more corroborative activity taking place in the content, i.e. it is found by others, it is thought to be of high value, it is uh, reshared, um, visited frequently, um, then Google's confidence in it begins to drop off. And the moment it drops off, of course, it thinks, okay, you know, this result perhaps was okay, but now it's not, and down it goes. If, however, that post is actually engaged with, then it does stay. And there are a couple of examples of posts which started off from Google+, and they're still on the first page of Google for now two years on. So they, they have stayed. But they did get that engagement. So that's why Google+, Plus is at the moment that shortcut. It gives you an instant uh, point to jump off into semantic search. If you're an authority in your own field outside Google+, Plus, you should be there anyway. And Google actually yeah. can weigh that. And they, you know, they constantly look to see it's a very um, sort of fluctuating field. They actually look at the results. They look, look at the um, end user behavior in terms of the visitors who go to your site. And they make a decision, which is why posts which are pushed there don't stay there more than a week or two. Yeah, got it. Which really revolves right back to what we were saying earlier in the in the piece about really identifying what you want to be known for and then creating content that's going to position you as a as an authority in that particular space, right? I mean, regardless of whether you're on Google Plus or not, that's the end game. Exactly, exactly. Yes. But at the moment it's it's an easy win, let's call it that, if you're in Google Plus because it does give you access to that kind of of jump. So, it, you know, it, it's uh it's a sort of um, almost no-brainer in terms of actually doing it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about another win as we we kind of get close to wrapping up. You know, in the olden days, and honestly, still in you know in, in current search, links from a website to another website is still one of the biggest factors that certainly would signal um, an authoritative site. We know that people have tried to game that in the past. How in the current you know day and time with semantic search might 
you know, an SEO's approach to link building change um, comparative to to what's gone on before? Well, what I'd like to see is links to go away entirely, but this is not going to happen anytime <laughs> soon. So. Well, they've been so testing that, the, right? I think they've just done a Google just done a that's test right. where yeah. they've tried to see how a, a, a web without you know links as a as a ranking Ex- signal would work. Yes, yes, very inconclusive. But yes, they have they have actually mm. tried. You're absolutely right. The reason they've tried is because the moment they create any kind of leaderboard and essentially links, because they can be numbered and they can have a specific um, point of origin, which itself can be reputationally valid or not, they create a leaderboard of sorts. The moment you create a leaderboard, you also create um, the incentive for humans to create economic behavior around it, which tries to game it, which is why Google is trying to move away from that. As semantic search stands at the moment, <clears throat> links are still valid, certainly as an SEO strategy, and they're still as valid as they were in the past in specific industries, but on, on the whole, they have been deprecated. So basically, their ability to drive a website up has dropped off. And the, the argument behind it, or the logic behind it, is that if you take that semantic search is like a pizza, for instance, and you have so many slices to the pizza, and then you say, okay, I'm going to have a few more guests around the table, well, the pizza is still the same, right? So all you're going to do is make the slices smaller. So each slice now has a slightly smaller value because you have more guests at the table. With semantic search, there have been a lot of new ranking factors which have been introduced. But the pizza hasn't grown in size. The game is still the same. Mm-hmm. So really, what happens is the moment you have more factors, a different weight is given to the pre-existing factors. They drop off, and a new value comes into the new ones. And Google constantly assesses the the, that equation to see its effectiveness. So we must bear this in mind. So one of the maddening things in this area, if you're chasing search engines, is it's a very floating game. The moment you think that you've nailed it, it actually changes again. Exactly. Well, that's why exactly why we should be moving away from this kind of, I guess, this tactical methodology, right? Where you think, oh, well, you know, a link from a page rank five website, you know, in this particular vertical is proven to increase results. Let's go and get one. It's bound to be good for my website. I mean, that sort of mindset is clearly not going to work as, as things move forward. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. So really, you need to focus on the one thing you can actually win, which is people. You really yeah. need to win people over. And they're hard to fool. We are hard to fool, which makes it, you know, it forces everybody to be more transparent, more real, more honest. It's a big win for everybody. So where's this whole thing heading? I mean, where are we in the evolution of search right now and, and what's coming up in the future, do you anticipate? Well, um, we've seen that two, I'm very glad you asked that because essentially in the very near future, this is what's going to happen. We've seen two big moves. One is that um, Chrome has actually got hands-free voice search and we have also seen that um, um, Google Docs have now got voice dictation. And both of these um, are examples of both increasing sophistication in voice, in both understanding and delivering value um, values in terms of that, which means that semantic search is going towards its natural evolution, which is screenless, keyless computers where search is purely voice activated. And even the little search box we're familiar with right now eventually is going to disappear. And what you're going to have is pretty much almost like a programmable artificial intelligence agent. You'll be able to ask it to do something for you. It'll go away, come back with the results. If you're not sure about them, about those results, you can say, you know, how did you get to that answer? And it'll give you all the different steps actually took so you can actually verify them. So that's where we're heading. It sounds like that recent film, right? Have you watched Her? 
Um, sure. Yes, that's <laughs> fantastic. Really, yeah. In, in, I mean, that's very much a sign of our times because when they created her, they, you know, film industry basically feeds off the um, this, this, the subtext of the cultural um, substreams that it, it floats in, and there is an undercurrent where we are increasingly bonding with our technology. Uh, it's becoming indispensable part of us. I mean, you know, we carry around small pocket-sized computers with us all day, wherever we are. Yeah. You know, we carry tablets with us, which can give us incredible computing power and an access to the web, irrespective of, of where we are. I mean, I've, I've done hangouts in airports and I've closed business deals in, in cafes, which is ridiculous when you think about it. Um, but it, and it's done, you know, through these wireless connections. So it's it's very much a reflection of how we are subconsciously um, seeing ourselves evolve with the tech that we use. Fantastic. Well, we're certainly getting there with things like Google now, right? Which has just got the ability to um, anticipate what we're doing, where we're going, mm. and make suggestions on that basis. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is really mind blowing stuff, right? It's predictive search at its best, certainly. And and it sort of kind of nails the argument that we are unpredictable because we really are not. We are very, very predictable. What What is missing to make us predictable is the masses of data which actually form our activity, our habitual activity. And the moment that, that data is there, then you, know, you can see that actually we are creatures of habit. We do very specific things in very specific ways and it can be actually um, sort of pre-programmed ahead for us. Yeah, which makes us wonder, maybe that actual reality of that movie, Her, is perhaps not that far away from us, right? I mean, we're probably getting close to it. <laughs> Scary stuff. Well, <laughs> there have been a couple of instances in Japan of um, uh, Japanese executives who actually have married an AI, I think. Um, and it's, you know, in terms of the emotional impact and connection, it's, um, you know, it's, in the person's mind, it's as real as, as the real thing. So what you're missing is the contextual contact elements. And and that is an entirely different story in how we're evolving in that direction. Yeah. Well, I think on that point, David, let's wrap it up. I certainly didn't expect us to be talking about marriage and artificial intelligence in this sentence <laughs> on this interview. So I think that's an appropriate time to wrap things up. You've, of course, got a book on this whole concept uh, Google semantic search. I'm sure our listeners will be interested where they can get that. Is it available online and in all good bookstores? Absolutely. They can get it on Amazon, um, Google Play, and certainly any book, any good um, bookshop should um, stock it. Fantastic. And where should we go to find out a little bit more about David Ameland? I blog a lot about all these things, including search, or at davidamerland.com. So if you find if you search for me there, um, you'll be able to see a lot of the content I produce. Fantastic. Well, you've been extremely generous with your time. I've thoroughly enjoyed our last 25 to 30 minutes of, of conversation. David, thanks for coming on Traffic Jam. Thank you very much. I'm, I was really excited to be here. This week's news in traffic. Okay, so we've got a couple of stories this week, both from the big giants online, Facebook and 
Google and we'll go to Google first. There's been an update to Gmail recently announced that allows users to auto unsubscribe from promotional messages. Now, already Gmail users are seeing a more prominent link at the top of the email beside the sender's name, allowing them to unsubscribe without looking right down to the bottom of the message where you'll normally find the unsubscribe link. Now, of course, marketers, they're a bit aggrieved about this. They're all worried that this will drive lower subscription rates, but there are some upsides. I think it will drive complaint rates lower and improve deliverability and potentially increase the amount of messages that get into the inbox. Now, since the link is from Gmail itself, I do think that subscribers will be more likely to click on that link rather than ignoring future emails. And that, of course, is a win for marketers. Now, what do you need to do yourself in light of this news? Well, I think the first action item would be to implement your own auto unsubscribe sequence to remove people who don't open your email and also give instructions to Gmail users to drag your email into the main inbox. So you're less likely to fall foul of this unsubscribe request later on. Next, we go to Facebook and they've given advertisers a way to target by relationship status. Now, the new targeting features now include those who've updated their status recently, e.g. in a domestic partnership, in a civil union, newlywed, etc., etc. Additionally, advertisers can target by recently changed life events within specific periods of time, e.g. new relationship status, newly engaged, newly wed within a specific time period like three, six months or even one year. Now, advertisers will also be able to build campaigns around combinations of geographies, including country and city like the UK and Dublin, country and state such as Canada and California and state and city, New Mexico and Los Angeles, as well as easily exclude certain areas, the UK excluding Cambridge, for instance. The ability to build ad campaigns that target users by specific interests will also be more refined. For example, marketers can choose baseball as their targeted segment, which correlates to users who have liked or expressed interest in baseball related topics and pages. Now, if you're a seasoned Traffic Jam listener and you're yet to leave the show a review, then what the heck are you waiting for? As I've said many times before on the show, leaving a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio really is the best possible way that you can show support. So if you're an iTunes listener, perhaps this week you could head on over in your iTunes player, search for the Traffic Jam podcast and leave a rating, a bit of a comment and a bit of review over there at iTunes. Or maybe if you're a Stitcher radio listener, head on over to stitcher.com and follow the same process to leave a review for the show there. As I've said, as I've said in this little sequence and many times on the show before, it really is a great way to support the show. It helps us move up the iTunes rankings. It helps get this great content into more earbuds. And I think that should be a goal for all of us. The one minute traffic tip. Okay, so I've got another email marketing tip for you this week. And this one's so simple and obvious. I think you're going to kick yourself in the foot if you're not doing it already. 
Now, if you are broadcasting emails to your list, which of course you should be when you've got something interesting or valuable to share with your audience, make sure the largest number of people possible from your email subscriber list get to receive that great information. Now, perhaps the easiest way I know to increase the number of email opens I get is to email again everyone that didn't open my original email. Now, don't get worried that this tactic might be annoying. People do get a huge amount of email and yours might have just got buried in and amongst that or perhaps your subject line may not have resonated originally or you just sent your email at the wrong time of day. So when you do email again, and of course, just to those people that didn't open the first email, try sending at a different time of day and using a different email subject line, one that perhaps has a different angle or approach. Now, this is a very easy process and most email broadcast systems like an Aweber, an Entreport and others do allow for filtering by recipients who did not open an email. So go give this a try. I think you'll see a big increase in the number of people that get to read your emails. Okay, I guess that's it. That does round out another episode of Traffic Jam. Thank you to my guest today, David Ameland. There'll be lots more quality guests lined up for the forthcoming weeks, including one very, very special guest next week, a real celebrity in the space. So you're not going to want to miss that episode. In the coming week, please be sure to check out the content over at veravo.com. You'll find this episode listed there, plus a host of other traffic tips and training, as well as ways that I can help you, including my SEO service and Google AdWords management service. So if you want me to help grow your traffic faster, then that's the place you'll find out about all of that. To play out this week's episode, of course, we have a track chosen by my guest today, David Ameland. It's by a Scottish singer-songwriter who's known as the Brother in Arms or the Sultan of Swing. His name is Mark Knopfler, and the track we're going to play of his is called sailing to Philadelphia. So enjoy that track and I'll see you back here real soon. I'm Jeremiah Dixon. I am a Geordie boy. Glass of wine with you, sir, and the ladies I'll enjoy. All Durham and Northumberland is measured up by my own hand. It was my fate from birth to make my mark upon the earth. He calls me Charlie Mason. Stargazer am I Seems that I was born To chart the evening sky They'd cut me out For bacon bread But I had other dreams instead This baker's boy From the west country Rejoined the Royal Society We are sailing to Philadelphia 
world away from the coldly time Salem, Philadelphia To draw the line The Mason, Dixon line
listening to the Traffic Jam Podcast with James Reynolds. To know more about this program and to subscribe for future episodes, check out the website, trafficjamcast.com.